Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Rod Duncan, who is the founder of a system of well-being that's not only being used in the school he's primarily involved with, Brentwood Secondary College in Melbourne, but is being replicated in many, many schools across Australia. So welcome, Rod. Um, and the first question to ask you uh, would be, the word is that you have 50 students on placement. How does that work? Hey, Andrew, it's good to be with you. Um, uh, how it works is um, that more, the more's the merrier is actually how it works. <laughs> so we actually have 55 at the moment, either on placement or who have continued after their placements finished as volunteers. And how it works is that over a period of time, we've developed a way that's put people into teams working within the school. We didn't start that way originally. We basically started with a, a group of placement students who were just generalists there to help young people navigate their learning environment. But now it's moved to a very complex system um, and complex I mean by the detail that we actually have to do to actually make it work. But the system itself is very simple. So what we did was follow need. So the first thing that we found was that there were young people that we couldn't get to, sort of what I'd call full first tier um, entry level, um, I'm, I need some help. I, I, I need some help to be able to navigate this part of my life. So some of that was friendship, some of that was anxiety, some of that was just looking at things to do with family, and some of it was navigating education itself. How do I cope in the classroom? How do I cope with this style of teacher, which isn't my style of teacher? And so working at a series of points where they felt they needed support in navigating. And then from there, we, uh, we developed a, a number of teams that then focus on some of those points of navigation. So take us through, through a bit. Um, so you started with a very small team of professionals who were the well-being team in the school yep. Yep. and now it's grown like topsy yep. and so there are tell us about that process about sure sure so in 2005 we decided to work with rmit and uh, to establish a link for, for having placement uh, uh, students on site and so we started with having about three or four a day which then increased our capacity to see students. We had a six period day at that point in time and they were probably seeing kids three, maybe four periods a day. So we were seeing another 12 to 16 kids a day than we as the professional team, which was three of us at that particular point in time in a school of around about 12 to 1300. And what has happened exponentially over that time is the school is now 16, 1860 kids. And so basically, when you get that, the volume actually increases the white noise for students in general, because um, it's the school isn't meant to hold that many kids. It's a school that was built for 860 kids. Mm -hmm. And so we have Portable City, like most schools do. And what we've done is then cut our cloth in wellbeing to meet the needs of students. So 
as I said, first it was generalists, people who could sit in the classroom with kids who were finding it very difficult to, to manage that space. Uh, sometimes it was taking them out of class to give the teacher a break or give the other students a break because they weren't able to navigate the space. Sometimes it was, as I said, helping them navigate their anxiety around exams or around friendship or whatever it might be. Um, sometimes it was helping them navigate um, things that they brought with from home. And so it was just creating space in, at that particular point in time. And so we were able to, as I said, increase our capacity to see another 75 kids a week that we couldn't see before. So that, mm. you know, that's the, the reason for doing it from our point of view. We could see another 75 kids. Right? So remarkable. Yeah. And then so then we moved to stage two in that, which was we actually said, okay, what are we identifying both educationally, right, but also in terms of student mental health? What are the key factors that we're starting to identify? And the first thing we identified was they couldn't recognize their strengths. They were so focused on their deficits that they couldn't, couldn't see what they could do. And so what we imported was a system of of strength-based practices, which was based on uh, Search Institute's work from Minneapolis in, in the States. And we basically Australia-fied that and made it what I would call took a complex system and made it simple. So we said basically the work of the, the students on placement with us was fivefold. Number one, it was about creating a safe environment, whatever that might look like for that student. Second thing it was about was holding hope for them. What was it that they were ho hoping might be, be achieved by their friendships, by being at school, and what they were hoping for for their own selves. Third thing was helping them connect with tribe, finding people who were like them and building communities into that. The fourth thing that we did was looking for ways of empowering them. So how could we empower that that they, that they already had and they could use it in other ways? And then, the, then from there, the fifth thing was what support that would they do? And what we learned was support was the last thing you gave, right? Because otherwise, then if you gave it first, students became dependent upon you, upon, upon you being around, and they were only able to function, right, when you offered support. Right. So a bit like what would happen with somebody with a disability that that uh, a significant disability that, mm. that they would need your everyday support in the classroom. And when you're not there, when that person's not there because funding doesn't allow it, then the student struggles. Right. So we learned that. So that's tier two. And in that tier, in doing that, the first thing that we discovered was looking at the transition from year seven, grade six to year seven. And so what we did was put a worker in every class. So that meant we went from having a situation every, every English class, basically, right? And so what we did was um, uh, we increased our number per day from three a day to 10 a day to actually achieve that, right? Which is around about, about 25 people we had on placement at that particular point in time. So we moved from uh, three a day, which is around about eight, to around about 15, a day, a, 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 sorry, 10 a day. So basically that, that's where we ended up. So started to just increase the number of people that we had in play, so up to 25. And in doing that, we were able to support every class that we had at year 11, seven level with a, a, a placement student working alongside them on a regular basis. 
So it, we actually took well-being into the classroom. So the teacher didn't have to worry about that emotional intelligence and helping them build that. The teacher didn't have to worry about emotional regulation as much. And the teacher didn't have to worry about building their executive function, right? That we were going to focus on those factors. And then there's stage three, which is basically where we went from that to building other teams in. And that meant that we, again, increased our number of placement students to around about 35 in this next year, which was sort of like between around 2009 and 2012, oh, about 14, probably about 14. And in that particular stage, we then started to build teams. And we looked at the next thing that the school was concerned about, and we were concerned about as well, which was the number of increasing number of students who were school refusing. So rather than being truant, these were people that their families, in general, the whole family was either staying home or the child and their one of their parents they were staying home with. And so we had, as I said, 20 to 30 of those that we were working with on a regular basis. And we built a team of support to support the parent and to support the young person. So a placement student would go out with, to, with another, one to work with the parent, one to work with the, the student, after a member of team had actually established that it was a safe environment for them to go into. Yeah. Right, And then from there, we moved to working with the next community of people, very much like the year seven approach, right? But we work with EAL students. So students where English was not their primary language mm -hmm. in helping them in English conversation and building their confidence and, their, and helping them manage their anxiety. But a very different way. You actually could tell, uh, Andrew, by body heat. So you'd walk past a student and you could tell how anxious they were just by walking past them from their body heat. Yes, basically, you know, feeling like nearly like a bit more like, you know, okay, this is very sensory. You can actually feel <laughs> as you're walking past. And the final stage has been just in one sense, building the depth of the work that we're doing in those teams. So then we, then we looked at things like... Um, how to restore relationships and working with our student managers so that basically it wasn't, uh, you've done a crime and here's the punishment, but you've done something that's against the school rules or you continued not to understand how to fit in. And so now we're gonna give you somebody who's gonna help you build new habits. And so we built this restorative team and then depth the program that we were doing with year seven into year eight. Um, in terms of looking at uh, what they would need and that we built that into our humanities program because year eight is the year of it's not fair. <laughs> and so we, we, we looked at that. So how do we create a fairer, a much more level playing field and looking at those sort of bits and pieces. So it's a bit of a ramble, Andrew, but that's about how it happened. So, so there's 55 mental health students <clears throat> on placement yep. and they're divided into... Uh, eight teams. Go through the eight teams. Okay, place. so there's uh, resilience work, right? So that's year seven. So resilience seven, resilience eight, right? So we do, do it in those two. Then EAL support, right? Restorative work, parent team, outreach team, uh, then intake. So we basically got people who do assessment and intake and then a counselling team. Thank you. That's great. So, okay, so there's this team. They spend some time together working outside the classroom. Yep. And they also spend some time in the classroom. Could you explain yep. that a bit of it? Sure, sure. So basically by doing the teams, some of them are working directly in classrooms. So they work in terms of that. And then they'll have a small caseload that will come usually out of their work in that classroom. But sometimes it's a bit more extended than that. 
um, and then they'll run lunchtime programs. So we've got one that's dealing with the fluidity in uh, sexuality. We've got another one that's looking at helping kids um, uh, navigate uh, media, uh, the use of media. We've got another one that works at um, uh, respectful relationships and so on and so on. So really cutting the cloth around what kids are actually asking for support and help with. Right? Um, then the restorative team, they've got four functions. So they help us manage the students who um, in one sense haven't been able to navigate the school's rules and systems that also they help with restoring relationships peer-to-peer -peer and between teachers and uh, and students um, and then finally they, they then we have the uh, the parent team who actually run parenting a parenting program so they'll be part of the information nights for year seven to year 12 um, they'll also um, work with a local primary school and helping them uh, in conversations about preparing for high school um, and also just see individual parents and supporting them along the way. Our outreach team, which, as I said, does home visits and then works with the kids in terms of that reconnection with school. And we see that reconnection having four phases. So there's one is reconnecti reconnecting with a worker, reconnecting with school, reconnecting with learning and hopefully reconnecting with the classroom. That last one is more of a struggle than anything else. Yeah, yeah. But the first three happen mm. on a regular basis. It's fantastic. So I know people who've have gone through and gained skills and experience through your program. So uh, they speak incredibly highly of it. But I can also hear in the back listeners that are saying probably, how do I supervise 55 students on placement? So can you tell us the answer to that? Sure. Basically, what I do, what we do is that we work with the universities. And so some of them are running their own external programs. So, for instance, if you have a social work student on placement, you can actually say to them, you provide the professional supervision. I'm just going to provide the daily supervision for that particular group. So that's much more around task supervision. Right. So in terms of it, so the same thing with those that might come out of youth work communities. So each of the universities work with that out of youth work communities. It's really task supervision that you're only needing to provide. We've decided to do more than that, but I'm just suggesting to you that that's what you need to do in terms of in, in terms of what the expectation is. Same with community services from TAFE, same with uh, what art therapy that art therapists that we use will actually have an outside supervisor who will provide their profession's supervision and we're just doing the other. Um, as, uh, and, and so in, in, in terms of it, it can feel like it feels a lot, but in regard, you're really supervising them to make sure that they're understanding the practices and the rituals you do. So we do briefing at the beginning of the day, and we break, we break our briefing into two sets. So we've got those who are doing outreach, and so that's the parent support group and, and the outreach team, and they'll be supervised by one member of the team. And then um, I'll work with the others who are in the other parts of the team first thing in the morning. And then in the afternoon, pre-doing their case notes, there'll be a debrief in the afternoon just to make sure that is there anything that we need to know about going into the next day? Because they're usually only with us two days a week. The social work guys are usually with us three. So there's need to be a transfer of data and information sometimes across that we might need to know. But also it's making sure they go home and they feel safe in going home, that they're leaving the kids that they work with for the day with us and not taking them with them. And that's probably the biggest part of the work. 
what we've tended to do is go what we call the extra mile in, with regard to them. And what we've looked after is building their social, emotional and reflective capacities. So, for instance, not looking at the emotion that somebody's saying. So not looking at the noun. So somebody says, I am sad, you know, so that they've made a feeling and a, a verb into a noun. And so what we want to help them do is unpack what's underneath that noun for themselves. You know, so, you know, how are you feeling today? Happy. Okay. So let's unpack happy. What's under happy, right? And actually helping them develop that reflective practice. But you don't have to do that, right? That's, that's, that's our bonus that we do because we take um, great pride in preparing for people for the profession, you know, that they're actually going into. So we do, even at the end of it, we help them with their CVs. We help put together them, uh, them in terms of looking at the uh, key criteria questions that they might be going for. And we help them with, uh, with practice interviews. But remember, Andrew, this is 16 years worth of work to get to where we are now. Yes. And we didn't do that at the beginning, mm -hmm. right? But what we found is we feel now because of how many people we're actually developing that we owe the industry a little more than somebody who might have three or four. So this is an amazing system that you've worked out. And for people who are listening to this and think this sounds great, what would be your advice in starting out on this journey? I think that the thing, there'd be three things I'd be looking at, which we've taken into consideration each time we've made a move or a development. Number one, look at what the strategic plan is asking of you in terms of well-being, right? So there'll be some well-being goals that you have to meet. And this is a way of meeting that. So that's one. The second thing is, what are the presenting issues that you're having within the school and actually determining to focus in on that one thing so that you actually get really good at doing one thing well? So for instance, don't just go for generalist counsellors who are just, in one sense, helping you deal with the, the white noise that comes to wellbeing sometimes, right? Actually target, what is that? What That anxiety, how would we actually best be placed to meet that question of anxiety? So actually focus in on one and build the placement students that you bring into the college that they know that that's what you're focusing on, right? So that you're actually helping people at the beginning of their practice focus in and get good at something in the same way that you're trying to show as an organization that you're good at something. And I think the third thing is don't do next year what you've done this year. Basically throw it out the window. At the end of the year, start again. Right? So think about what it is that you have been doing and is it still relevant? Or do you need to make space in what you're doing and fine tune what you're doing to meet emerging needs? Three years ago, we would never have thought about um, uh, really focusing in on the support of people in, uh, in terms of exploring their gender, right, and exploring their sexuality in the way that we are now. I reckon within three years, we're going to be in a situation where it won't be male or female considerations on your sheet. There'll be so many people that will be other. Mm. And I don't think as an industry, we're ready for that yet. Yeah. And, and I'm just saying, so we're, we're now moving much more to in instructing people that way. This, and, and the second part of that is helping young people navigate what the law is around 
sharing images and those sorts of bits and pieces. I know it's been around for a while, but the ground is moving so quickly in that area and really understanding that, that, that dialogue is going to be quite profound, I think, for the adults, not for, not for the young people. They'll navigate it okay. But I think helping the adults, like the teaching community, understand that because their understanding is share a, a naughty image, get a punishment, right? And rather than seeing as what the exploration's about, what is that saying to us? about identity what is that saying to us about human need uh, what is that saying to us about belonging what is that saying to us about communication yeah. so i think there are some things like that andrew that i'd say yeah. fantastic um so if people who are listening to this would like to explore this further with you how might they get in touch with you Rob? oh well they could uh, get in touch with me either through my email um uh, which is rod dot dungan d-u-n-g-a-n at gmail.com just using my private one for that because then they can contact me whenever they want um and so that that i'd be happy that way uh the second thing that that i'd suggest is um that uh it you you could get in contact with me through brentwood secondary college that we'd be happy for people to actually make appointments come out and have a look at what we're doing it's probably the easiest way and usually what we do is get you shown around by one of the placement students so that, that you get the real, so you don't get the, the, the lovely picture of what we do, you get the raw imagery of what we do. So for instance, by the way, Andrew, just one of the things that we do do now that, you know, again, is in the last mm. five years, students are on the interview panel for the placement students, right? So, so it's not just the professional team that are choosing, it's our kids who actually make the decisions around who would they like to see in the group coming through? Because remember, they're there for six months minimum, right? Yes. So they're there for six to nine to 12 months. That's all they're there on placement. So there's a great turnover of them. And you'd think that that would cause some issues, but the kids have got so used to it now that basically they know that that person's going to be there for that amount of time. And, and, and uh, it's only the ones with really complex needs who our professional team now need to see. I really want to honour the work that you do in this and many other spheres of life as well, which we won't go into because that would take way too long. Uh, because it's remarkable. I think the, the model that you've worked out and the system of really providing care to a far greater reach of students than the traditional models of well-being is just something that's an exemplary example of what we can possibly do in the future. So thank you. And thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Andrew. It's been great fun. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people. And also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours, and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. The Mental Health and Wellbeing of Young People seminar has gone digital. This is a resource for anyone who supports young people. The eLearning Hub has all your favourite speakers from the Generation Next events and much more. There are hours and hours of courses to choose from. We know life's busy, so we made sure you can pause the courses at any stage and continue where you left off the next time you log in. You can also 
automatically download your certificates of participation and record your notes and ideas with the documentation tool and editable course books. If you would like to try it out, head to generationnext.com.au and sign up yourself and your whole team for the next free course. And please, share the resource far and wide. Thank you for your support for Generation Next and all you do to support young people.